public education in the city is unequal. There are private schools that teach those with means. For the rest, public schools are a bit of a mixed bag. But public schools are in transition. Educators and activists are working with limited resources, trying to figure out new ways of doing things. New teaching models and training methods are underway, and strides are being made in expanding educational opportunities for those families who can't afford private school. But there are still a huge number of kids who are left behind, and teachers and families are advocating and innovating to figure out how to provide quality, publicly funded education for those who are most vulnerable. It's Philadelphia in the 1860s, and this is the educational landscape that Carolyn LeCount, the hero of our story, has to navigate during her pioneering career as an educator and activist in Philadelphia. Welcome to Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present. Because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Almond. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself, right here in the city of brotherly love. The following is the third episode in a special series about educator and activist Carolyn LeCount. The first two episodes told the story of our city during and after the crisis of the Civil War and the triumphs and tragedies in the life of Carolyn LeCount. This episode is the first of two that will look at the importance of education in LeCount's life. And we'll see how LeCount's work in education remains relevant today. And before I forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave me a review in your podcast app, or both. There are a lot of podcasts out there, and your words of recommendation are the best way to help people find Found in Philadelphia. And many thanks to all of you who've already shared the podcast and left a review. When we left Carolyn LeCount in the last episode, she'd come through the triumph of winning the streetcar integration fight and seeing Black men get the right to vote, only to lose her fiancé, Octavius Caddo, in racial violence on Election Day in 1871. We left her standing by Caddo's graveside in the rain. But there is so much more to LeCount's story. So for this episode, we're going to turn back the clock a bit and focus on LeCount and her place within the development of Philadelphia's public schools. When I originally started reading about LeCount, her career as an educator and activist really stood out. This was her life's work. I wanted to talk to someone who could give me their perspective on the issues that LeCount dedicated her life to, and think about how relevant many of those same issues are today in Philadelphia schools. That's how I came across the Educate Her blog by Dia Jones. I was excited to find such a thoughtful and passionate voice for education. And when Jones agreed to an interview, I knew I'd hit the jackpot. Dia Jones is a dean at the Mastery Charter School Shoemaker Campus. She agreed to meet with me before COVID-19 shut things down. She gave me a tour of her school, which is an amazing historic building. It has beautiful green glazed tile in the entrance hall and a two-story tall lunchroom with exposed metal trusses. Then we sat down in her office with its incredible views of the neighborhood around the 52nd Street Corridor in West Philly. And we talked about education in Philadelphia today. Jones told me how she became a teacher through a special program to bring new teachers into the classroom. It was pretty much trial by fire. So I went through the new teacher project in 2004. 
and you go through maybe two or three months of training and then they immediately put you in the classroom. So I, my first school, exactly. So yeah, when I look back on it, I'm like, I was not ready. So I did, did that kind of non-traditional route and then I had to work on my certification from there. And they put me in what was kind of maybe one of the traditionally kind of tougher schools uh, because I come from a military background and they thought I could handle it. So I, I went to the school and uh, I had a week to observe my classroom. Mm. So that was the best thing that, I, that could have ever happened for me because I was able to observe my own students for a week and I was able to then develop lessons for those students specifically on their levels and, of course, I kind of got a heads up in some of the behaviors, yeah. so that helped me a lot. Jones found the most joy in meeting with her students first thing every morning. And even though it was not an ideal classroom setting, she found the magic of connecting with her kids. I liked advisory. My advisor was 48 students. We did not have enough desks, so they were sitting around, sometimes on the floor, sometimes on my desk. And I thought, how in the world am I going to actually be able to pull this off? But from day one, those students just started talking to me about regular stuff, regular life, mm -hmm. things that I had never known in the city of Philadelphia. So I knew that, that I was exactly where I needed to be because I was learning just as much from them as they were learning from me. And that kind of set the tone for me in my um, educational career that, you know, just to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think that has made the hugest difference in my, um, my time with children. In future episodes, we'll go back to this talk with Dia Jones and reflect on how LeCount's life and work still resonates today. In order to do that, I want to give you some background on public education in Philadelphia, because it really helped me understand just how significant LeCount's work really was. And to be honest, I haven't really seen a history of LeCount that does justice to her story. First of all, let's be clear that there has never really been a golden era when publicly funded schools educated everyone equally in Philadelphia. From the very beginning, there were very different educational opportunities for the wealthy and the poor, and for white people and people of color. And we're still dealing with that legacy today. Before publicly funded schools got started in Pennsylvania, most children who went to schools outside of the home were from families who could afford private school. There were some students who were lucky enough to live in a community that provided an education for free for example, Philadelphia's Quakers established a small school for Black children as early as 1770, and many Black churches set up their own small schools or provided some education on Sundays. But many children simply didn't go to school at all. They were often needed to work for the family. School was seen as a luxury. But during the Revolutionary War years, educating the citizens of the New Republic was viewed as a common good, worthy of public investment. Free schools for poor citizens were actually mandated in the young state of Pennsylvania's constitution, but it took some time to get them established. Philadelphia actually started the first publicly funded school system in the state of Pennsylvania and was among the earliest school systems in the United States. The city's first free schools were created in 1818 to teach poor white children whose parents couldn't afford to send them to private schools. These early free schools were really the first of many, many flawed experiments in educating children more equitably in Pennsylvania. But Black Philadelphians were actively discouraged from attending these early free schools, even though they weren't expressly forbidden from attending. The Black community was told that if they sent their kids to the free schools, they'd be seen as taking away resources from poor whites. And this would cause tensions between Blacks 
and the predominantly poor immigrants. These groups are already pitted against each other in the fight for the limited resources offered by the city. However, under pressure from the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, the first publicly funded school for poor Black children was built in Philadelphia in 1822. Though according to a history of Philadelphia public schools, spending public funds on a school for Black children was hotly debated for its, quote, propriety and legality. But after careful consideration, the school commissioners decided they were justified in establishing the school. This first free school for poor Black children was known as the Mary Street School and served 200 students. Several other free schools would follow, but the Mary Street School building still stands in a heavily altered state at what is now 141 League Street, near 2nd and Washington. It's currently home to Philadelphia Style magazine. But Philadelphia's early free schools were not fun. These schools were developed on the Lancasterian method, named after his creator, an Englishman named Joseph Lancaster. His system was applauded for its efficiency and cost savings, not necessarily for cultivating young minds. Education by this method was compared favorably to labor-saving machinery, and was just about as joyful as that sounds. Here's what it looked like. One teacher sat at the end of a large open hall and looked out over a room full of students of varying ages. In the front of the room, there were open areas for students to stand and recite. In the back were rows of bench-like seats. Classes could be as large as 450 students to one teacher. The actual teaching was done by older and more advanced students who looked after groups of younger students. Students were grouped by their ability and rotated in blocks through the schoolroom with very little adult supervision. There was an emphasis on following rules, rote memorization, and repetition. The Lancasterian method was really aimed at turning out good workers for the factories of the Industrial Revolution, not independent thinkers. These early free schools were so awful, and they eventually earned such a bad reputation that Pennsylvania later had to drop the term free school and switch to public school. But major changes were coming for these schools in Pennsylvania during the 1830s. Up until this time, public funds were only used to help the very poorest, mostly white children. And these early free schools had a pretty bad reputation. So if families sent their kids to school at all, anyone who could would scrape together the money to send their children to one of the many small, private, often home-based schools. This was in fact how Carolyn LeCount would be educated as a small child. But the whole idea of publicly funded schools was undergoing a major transformation during this time. Despite fierce opposition, progressive lawmakers succeeded in passing major reforms under the 1836 School Law of Pennsylvania that brought free education for all of Pennsylvania's children, regardless of wealth. Those schools in Philadelphia would remain segregated. And this was because the school law ruled that wherever there was a minimum of 20 Black children in a community, like in a big city such as Philadelphia, they should be provided with a separate school. Where this was not the case, Black children were allowed to attend white schools, but they were often forced to sit in segregated areas. Attending a white school was, all too often, a humiliating experience for these children. By the 1850s, Philadelphia's informal system of public schools was developing into something that felt like a real school system spreading across the newly consolidated city and its outlying areas. And the school district ultimately abolished the much-hated Lancasterian system of teaching in favor of more progressive methods. This led to a new era of professionalism in the field of education. 
New theories and ideas were being tried and tested. By the 1850s, teachers were now being formally trained in what were called normal schools. One normal school was integrated into the curriculum of the celebrated Institute for Colored Youth, where Carolyn LeCount would get her training as a teacher. This was an exciting time to be an educator. Carolyn LeCount came of age right as the field of teaching was becoming a skilled profession. And when public education was increasingly seen as a common good that should be available for all of Pennsylvania's children. This was also a time when the city of Philadelphia was consolidating and expanding its school system across its new ward divisions. And at the same time when civil rights activists were demanding equal access to these new institutions for all citizens, regardless of race. LeCount was in the front lines of these changes, and she used her position to build quality public schools for the Black community and to expand career opportunities for the Black educators that came after her. Let's take a look at what Carolyn LeCount was up against. What was the state of Black education specifically in this time of transition? Well, we have a fairly clear picture because Philadelphia's Black community was collecting data on this very topic in the 1850s. So we're gonna take a statistical interlude to dig into these numbers. Philadelphia's Black community understood the power of data collection. Many early studies were conducted by the Interracial Pennsylvania Abolition Society. However, by 1860, the Black community had its own activist group called INFOL, the Social, Cultural, and Statistical Association of the Colored People of Pennsylvania. We'll just call them the Statistical Association and note that its members played an active part in the streetcar integration fight talked about in earlier episodes. The Statistical Association formed to undertake an educational research study in the 1850s. Their study focused on, quote, ascertaining the present state of education among the colored population of our city and districts in order that those who succeed us in this concern may at future periods have some data from which they can form an estimate of the progress made by this class of our citizens in school learning. The Statistical Association was establishing a baseline for the state of education in the Black community with an eye to tracking improvements in the future. And their work was built on by other researchers later in the century. You may have heard of one of them, W.E.B. Du Bois. He developed pioneering sociological studies in Philadelphia in the 1880s. His work was later published in the Philadelphia Negro. And Carolyn LeCount would play a role in Du Bois's work too, but more on that later. Let's dig into the 1850s report on education. You can find the full 1850s Statistical Association report at the Library of Congress website, but here are a few interesting takeaways. In 1854, a significant number of Black children in Philadelphia, aged 8 to 18, did not attend school at all. This was about 40% of all school-aged children who weren't in school. Of the remaining 60% that did attend school, which is about 2,300 children, about 45% of them were enrolled in the eight publicly funded schools open to them. These included larger public schools that had been established under the previous free school system, as well as some newer public schools for black children. The newer schools tended to be smaller with an average attendance of 15 to 30 students. These would have been smaller home-based schools that were petitioning to join the larger public school system. But both large and small public schools were seen as showing definite improvement over what was admittedly a very low bar set by the earlier free schools. The Statistical Association study also noted that all of these public schools were run by white teachers. About 15% of children who attended school went to one of the 13 private day schools, predominantly run by black women who taught out of their homes, 
Even though these schools often had some form of tuition and required a significant financial sacrifice and commitment from families. Only 1% of children who attended school were enrolled at the prestigious Institute for Colored Youth, like Carolyn LeCount. But the report includes a very stark statistic that shows how vulnerable this population was. Of the children who were noted as attending school, fully 19% of them were considered inmates at houses of refuge or attended charity schools for the destitute. One can only imagine what school looked like for these children. The 1850 study also indicated that of the 9,000 adults surveyed, about 45% were illiterate, and only 59 individuals held jobs that required any form of significant education, training, or apprenticeship. 16 of those adults in higher prestige jobs were educators, while there were only six physicians, five clerks, and one midwife. Out of 9,000, this was the state of the free Black community in a northern city just as the country was heading towards civil war, their lives were still clearly impacted, still limited by racism. There was clearly a lot of work to do in terms of education, but there was also a need to create opportunities for African-Americans in jobs that were often denied them, even when they had the right training. And that's where Carolyn LeCount comes back into the story. Carolyn LeCount was one of the lucky 1% who attended the Institute for Colored Youth she graduated only three years after the findings from the Statistical Association study were published. So this was the state of the Black community that she set out to educate. But she had some help. LeCount was assisted by another pioneering Black educator, Cordelia Atwell Jennings, an 1860 graduate from the Institute for Colored Youth. Jennings would give LeCount her first job. After graduating from the Institute, Jennings started a new private school for Black children at her family's home on the 900 block of South Street. Two years later, Jennings' school was so successful that she had moved into a series of larger spaces. While Jennings' school was growing, Carolyn LeCount was completing her education at the Institute for Colored Youth. LeCount briefly attended the Pennsylvania Medical College for Women, but soon decided to turn to teaching. Around the same time, Jennings needed teachers for her growing school. Jennings hired LeCount to help her and the school get ready for some big changes. Jennings' formerly private school was about to be incorporated into the growing Philadelphia public school system. Jennings' school would become public as the Ohio Street Unclassified School. The name came from the school's new location in a rented building on Ohio Street, a small alley running east from 12th Street below Pine. Unclassified just meant that it enrolled children of all ages. Now, Jennings had been working on making her privately funded school part of the public school system for a while. A few years earlier, she first asked to join the school district system as part of the fourth ward where Jennings lived. But they would only agree if Jennings would step down as principal and serve as assistant to presumably a white principal, which she refused to do. There were no African-American principals in Philly's public schools at that time, and certainly no black women in that position. So, a few years later, Jennings applied to join the school district as part of the 7th Ward, and she was accepted on her own terms by the head of that division, Louis Elkin. Elkin was a wealthy Jewish philanthropist who believed deeply in the public school movement. Upon his death in 1901, Elkin would donate $2 million to the school district of Philadelphia to create a pension for retired school teachers. Elkin's bequest would be worth about $60 million today. This remains one of the largest donations in the school district's history. 
1864, Cordelia Atwell Jennings was about to become the first African-American woman to serve as a principal in the city. Her school would no longer be supported by private tuition, but would be paid for by public funds within the school district of Philadelphia. Black children could now attend for free. Jennings hired LeCount and two other women, Mary Brown and Mary Matthews, all graduates of the Institute for Colored Youth, to assist her in this transition. By selecting Institute graduates, Jennings was establishing a high standard by hiring the best and brightest educators for her school. Her public school was going to provide a quality education for the Black community based on the latest methods and taught by talented teachers. I should note that in 1864, another Institute graduate was promoted to principal within the Philadelphia school system and would work to build quality public education opportunities for the Black community. This was Jacob C. White Jr., a peer, friend, and colleague of Jennings LeCount and Octavius Caddo. But White would be hired as a principal to improve the existing Robert Vox Primary School, which had been established under the earlier free school system and was languishing with only 50 students. In contrast, Jennings, as a woman, had to build her own successful school of 200 students and fight for her right to remain as principal when her school was incorporated into the Philadelphia School District. And perhaps for this reason, Jennings staffed her school exclusively with fellow female Institute graduates to promote other women educators. When Jennings hired LeCount and her peers in 1864, these women were required to meet the school district's new qualifications for teachers. That's how LeCount became one of the first three Black women in Philadelphia to pass the city's teacher's examination, which was part of the new professional standards for educators. And these Black women were required to score 5% higher on the examination than their white colleagues in order to pass it all. Though I doubt this was an issue for these well-trained women, it was still blatantly unfair. So these extraordinary women were joining forces to show the school district what quality education for Black youth looked like. These were real superheroes, right? I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the Ohio Street 4 graphic novel. Jennings, Brown, Matthews, and LeCount. The stakes were high, but these women were ready for the challenge. But there was a problem. After only three years of going public, Cordelia Jennings married and moved to Louisville, Kentucky to take over a high school there. According to records, the three young women who had just passed the city's teacher's examination, LeCount, Brown, and Matthews, were re-examined in January of 1867 to see who would score the highest and replace Jennings as principal at the Ohio Street School. Jennings had fought hard to become a principal, and it was important that another Black woman replace her. And like so many other times before, Carolyn LeCount came out on top. So LeCount was promoted to principal of the Ohio Street School at the age of only 21. Throughout the streetcar integration battles of 1867, LeCount was also heading up an entire public school on her own and navigating the complexities of being a part of this larger school system. And LeCount would go on to build one of the most well-respected Black public schools in late 19th century Philadelphia. More on that story in the next episode. And I promise you won't have to wait months for the next one to drop. Thank you for listening to this special series of the Found in Philadelphia podcast. This podcast was made possible in part through a grant from the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. I'd like to thank Dia Jones, current Philadelphia educator, activist, and creator of the Educate Her blog. I continue to feel so lucky to have had the time to meet with you earlier this year. I also need to recognize the working from home support of Cyril Tayendier, an associate teaching professor and audio engineer at Drexel University, 
and head of Mad Dragon Recording Studios. I'd also like to send a special thanks to Diane Richardson at the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion and everyone who attended the online Q&A event about Carolyn LeCount in June. I greatly appreciated your enthusiasm and your thoughtful questions. It really helped me think through these episodes about LeCount and public education. And you gave me permission to extend the story of Carolyn LeCount into more episodes, because as you reminded me, the story of Black activism and the fight for civil rights has been going on for 400 years and counting. This story has no end, but it's important that we keep telling it.